Today's sermon text reading comes from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Thomas. Has it ever occurred to you that what Christians do every single Sunday morning is very unique? That for 90 minutes, every single week, we come to church, we listen to a sermon, which is proportionately the, the longest part of the, the worship service, but then second, only behind the sermon, at least in terms of total length, would be that we sing together multiple times every single week. There's just no other part of culture that really replicates what we do as the church every single Sunday morning, that we sing together. Now, if you've been paying attention to to current events, you'll know that Taylor Swift is just breaking all sorts of records this summer as she's traveling the country with her concert tour. There are people that are paying thousands and thousands of dollars for tickets all because they want to hear Taylor Swift sing. Now, if you're a fan, you might show up at whatever concerts, and likely the music will be so good that you'll be swept up in the moment, and the crowd, the fans, will begin to sing along with Taylor Swift. But make no mistake, people pay thousands of dollars to hear Taylor sing, not listen to the fans sing. They're here for their professional. It's very different than what we do on Sunday morning as a church. For as wonderful as our vocalists are, we're not here primarily to listen to them, but to sing together. Us singing together is the point. Our college football, it's only one week away. I'm very excited about this. After a touchdown in college football, the stadium is going to erupt in cheers, and all the fans will begin to sing the fight song. Now, it is singing together. There are no professionals that are singing on the field. But the singing is a byproduct for why the fans show up. They are there to watch football, and then the singing is just added to the show. But on Sunday morning, we are here to actually sing. Culturally, we we sing a, a few times at least throughout the year. Think of the 4th of July. You might sing the national anthem or for a birthday, a handful of times throughout the year, you gather around the dining room table with a cupcake and you sing with your family. But in those moments, people typically sing very quietly, sheepishly. Most of us aren't used 
to singing together. And so it is mumbly singing at the best. It's very different, again, from what we do on Sunday morning. We are here together to sing with one another. Here in Psalm 95, we are instructed to sing loudly, to be together. It is very different what we do on Sunday morning in the church compared to anything else in all of society. We sing every week and we sing together. There are no other comparisons. Our psalm for this week, as we're going through the psalms for the summer, is Psalm 95. And the theme is, of course, singing. See, the invitation to sing in verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. And then that theme of singing is really the thread of the entire psalm. In verse 3 of Psalm 95, we are told to sing because God is great. Whenever we encounter greatness, the right, appropriate response that, that bubbles up from our soul and out of our mouths, whenever we encounter what is great, a very natural response is for us to sing. And therefore, because God is great, if you understand that, it should bubble up from within and we are to sing back to Him. Two ways here in Psalm 95 that we see God's greatness, two reasons for why we are to sing. First, we see God's greatness in verses four through five. We see God's greatness in nature. Second, we see God's greatness in verses six through seven through his gracious work of calling us to be his people. So we see God's greatness in nature and we see God's greatness in redemption. First, nature. For all the ways in which the world is, yes, under a curse. So droughts, famine, war, disease, sin. For all the ways that the world is under a curse, the world is still equally glorious. God, who existed before there was anything else, God had a blank canvas to work with, and he spoke the world into existence. So mountain vistas, clear blue water of Lake Michigan, rainforest, coral reefs, and all that fills God's great world. So bright tropical fish in the Caribbean, the majestic line of the African plains, the, the glory of humanity, men and women made in God's image. All of that is God's handiwork. And all that we see in creation speaks to the greatness of God. Now, in my mind, this is the best time of year if you live in the state of Michigan. So I love being a Michigander. I especially love northern Michigan. It's the best time of year because you can still swim in Lake Michigan, so it's still warm enough to swim. You can go out to Lake Michigan, you can look down, you know, 20 feet, crystal clear water, just spectacular. And yet, there's something in the air that you also know the autumn is coming. So apple orchards and pumpkin pies and all the best parts of a Midwest fall. And it's just this magical transitional season where it's the glory of summer that's slowly going to move into the glory of fall. And in my mind, it just does not get any better if you live in this state during this season. It's grand. 
It's glorious. It, it, it happens so seamlessly and without fail that sometimes we, we, we forget how glorious it is. God could have made a world, no seasons, no colors, no apples, no blue water, no lions, just, just dry, crumbly rock. God could have done it that way. But no, he created this grand and glorious world, and the beauty of nature itself testifies to the greatness of God. So that's the first reason we see God's great. Then the second is that we see God's greatness in redemption, that we are called to be his people. That's verse 7. Look at the types of words that are used. The people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. While we are sheep that have tried to leave the green pastures of God's love and God's kindness, God as a shepherd comes after us and brings us back into his folds. And of course, Psalm 95 actually pushes us forward in the story of redemption and gets us to Jesus, Jesus, the shepherd in the flesh that brought back his sheep by going to the cross to live and die in their place. The psalm is about the greatness of God in redemption. God is great. For all that we see in creation and all that we see Jesus accomplish for us in the gospel to all the full hope of eternity, when creation will be fully redeemed, when we will be fully redeemed and the two are seamless and we will be with God in untainted fellowship forever. We ought to gladly confess, and not just confess, but we ought to sing every single Sunday that our God is in fact great. God's not just decent. God's not just pretty good, or he's just a little bit better than the other gods. No, God is in fact great. And all God's people said, amen. But the main point for this morning is not that God is great, although that would be a wonderful sermon to give. Psalm 95 assumes that God is great. So what I want to really unpack this morning, what I want us to see from Psalm 95 is the connection between God's greatness and singing. What I want us to see is that singing is not just a way to honor God's greatness, but God actually gives us the gift of singing as a grace to help us understand God's greatness all the more. That singing is not just to glorify God, but singing is actually a grace that God uses to grow us in our relationship with Him. It's in the book, The Magician's Nephew, which in the Chronicles of Narnia series was not the first book that C.S. Lewis wrote, but it's the prequel, so in the order of the story, it is the first book. And in this book, C.S. Lewis describes how the world is made. So the world is dark, it's empty, it's without form. And Aslan, the great lion that represents Jesus, Aslan begins to sing, that when there was nothing, it's not just that Aslan 
spoke the world into existence, but that he spoke the world into existence by singing his word. Now, I think C.S. Lewis is, is, is actually on to something. Because if you go to Genesis 1, you get the sense, even if you are not a, a Hebrew scholar, you get the sense that there's a, a poetic feel to it. Now, Genesis 1, it, it's absolutely history, Adam, Eve, real man, real woman. So it's all absolute history. But even still, in Genesis 1, you, you get the sense that there's a song-like structure to it. That God was speaking, but he was also singing. There's a poem, there's a poem. It's not as though God in the fellowship of the Trinity is just, just very bland and stoic. Just, you know, just arms crossed. You know, God, just uh, let there be light. and uh, Just let there be lands. Just monotone, sad, dry. Now, a much better understanding of God is, is God's in the, the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That the God is in the fellowship of love and joy and peace forevermore. And the Father's looking at the Son, and the Son's looking at the Spirit, and the Spirit's looking at the Father. And there's just this overwhelming, overflowing sense of joy that is sung out into the world, that the world is sung into existence out of a happy fellowship, Trinitarian relationship, meaning that singing, happy, joyful Christ. God-honoring singing is sung, woven into the fabric of the world. It's actually in your DNA. It's how God made you. God made you to sing to Him. We are created as men and women in God's image. We are created to sing. Now, this does not mean that you are created to sing well. I, I get that. Some of you are average at best. I'm not saying that all of you are designed to be opera singers. What I am saying is that in the fabric of who you are, you are created to sing joyfully to God. Notice with me in, in verses 8 and 9 that there is a, a very abrupt transition in this psalm. The beginning of Psalm 95 is about loud, joyful singing, hearts towards God. At the end of the psalm, there is no more joyful singing about great God, but what we see are stubborn hearts, men and women digging in their heels, refusing to acknowledge God. So in the life of Israel, this was as, as Don McLean would say, this was the day the music died. There is no more singing in Israel. So he, here's the question. What comes first? Did the people have hard hearts and therefore they stopped singing? Or did they stop singing and therefore their hearts grew hard? Put it the opposite. Does singing lead towards hearts that are soft towards God? Or do you need a soft heart that is going to lead you to sing to God more? And my sense is that that question is a chicken or the egg kind of question because both happen at the same time and both actually serve one another. People that understand the greatness of God are going to want to sing about Him 
And yet, as we are singing about our great God, because we are designed to sing as we sing about Him, that actually helps us further understand the greatness of God. It's the chicken or the egg. You see, you need both. Think of singing as a grace that God has given to us that pushes us away from what is lesser and then pushes us towards what is greater. So, so singing is, is, is one movement. It's drawing us away from the lesser. It's drawing us out of our stubborn hearts. It's drawing us away from our idols and our lesser gods. And as we are being drawn away from the lesser, as we are singing, as we're being drawn away from, we're actually being drawn to the greatness of God. And you're developing, you're growing, you're being sanctified in that movement as you are growing closer to God. Singing is for your good. Singing is one of the ways that God has given you to help you understand just how great He is. Singing, warm-hearted, evangelical singing is one of the ways that God gives you to keep you from being stubborn against God. See, so the, the, the cure for the second half of this psalm, where the people are very stubborn, what they need to do is, yes, of course, they need to return to God. One of the ways that they need to return to God is by singing about Him again. I, I recognize it's, it's hard existentially to always describe what is going on in our hearts when we sing, but I think we can all relate to when there's really happy, joyful singing that, that somehow it just... It, it softens your heart to beauty. It reminds you of greatness. Somehow I think singing even gets you out of your, your, your own head. You're, lef, you're less self-aware. There's something mystical and powerful and godly about singing that actually just gets you out of yourself and helps you become more happy. It's a gift. It is a grace. And therefore, when you are feeling especially stubborn, Stuck in sin, I would say one of the cures that God has given to us is to sing. I think of, for those of you that are, that are married, I think you can relate to, to times when you're just, you're just feeling kind of stubborn against your spouse. There's, there's been a, a disagreement, there's a conflict, somehow you're just not seeing eye to eye on an issue, and you're miserable. Being stubborn is not fun, but, but you're, you're, you're just, you know, you know, kind of digging your heels. You're going to be stubborn. You're going to just, I'm, I'm not going to apologize. There's just a, a, a thick stubbornness in your heart. What you need to do in those moments is that you need to say things that you know are true, even if you don't actually believe. Uh, so you're very, you're just very stubborn. I'm not going to move towards you. You need to say, uh, honey, I love you. I'm sorry. I want to be with you. I, I, I want to be near you. And as you say those words, by you saying what is true, God uses you verbalizing those words to actually soften your heart. That as you speak what you know to be true, God actually uses that as a grace to make you less stubborn. And as you become less stubborn, then what you are saying is not just factually true, but is actually true in your heart. See, it's a two-way movement. That's how it works with us and God. 
God, I, I don't always believe this. And I'm a little bit stubborn right now, but I'm going to sing holy, holy, holy. And as you sing it, God softens your heart so that you begin to believe it, not just in your mind, but you begin to believe it in your hearts. That's the power of words, and it is specifically the power of singing. So if you are dry in your walk with the Lord, if this morning you are even feeling distant and cold towards God, perhaps even worse, perhaps your heart is very stubborn, very hard, and you are stuck in some serious sin. A great way to restore the joy of your relationship to God is to do what the psalmist says in verse 1, to come and sing. And even if in the moment your heart is barely into it, come and sing, because singing is one of the means that God will use to soften your heart. This is again from C.S. Lewis in his book on the Psalms. He writes that, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. That's a very important insight. We delight to praise what we enjoy, not just to express it, but to actually complete it. See, praise, singing, it is the consummation of joy. Here's what C.S. Lewis means. If you experience something great, but you keep it internally inside of you, you don't tell anyone else about it, you don't sing about it, you don't praise about it. If you experience greatness, but you keep it inside of you, there's going to be a limit to how much greatness you can enjoy. But when you begin to verbally express and praise greatness, that praise is finished, it's complete. That is the consummation of praise. See, somehow, again, this is just how we're wired as people, as we verbalize as we sing it out, the greatness actually becomes greater in our heart. Again, think of sports. So in one week, college football is about to kick off, and so there's going to be stadiums in East Lansing and in Ann Arbor and Columbus, Happy Valley. All the stadiums are going to be packed with fans. And after every touchdown, there's going to be the singing of the fight song, and there's going to be high fives and and hugs, and it is going to be a lot of fun. Now, it it actually, it it used to be a lot more fun. So my freshman year at Michigan State was 2000. This is one year before 9-11. And before 9-11, you could just do a lot more in football stadiums. So me and my buddies, we would uh, would duct tape bags of marshmallows around our chest. So we'd just bring in thousands of marshmallows, you know, throw them at the players, throw them at fans. We would... uh, air horns, flagpoles, the, the whole gambit. The, the, the funniest was we would uh, sit in the front row. At the end of the first quarter, you get a college student, you, you crowd surf the student all the way to the top row. And as soon as he got to the top row, you would drop him real fast and you throw a mannequin over the side. And so all the cops are, ah, you know, there goes a guy. And uh, it was a terrible idea. It was a terrible idea, but it was a lot of fun. 
The point is, is that it's very fun to be in the stadium singing with 80,000 of your best friends. Now compare that to the COVID football season, three years ago, just the big house, empty, no, nobody's in there. You're watching the game on TV and I, I just couldn't get into it. I mean, college football, no fans, and it was, it was quite boring. Now, now, why is that? It's the exact same game with the exact same players running the same plays, the same strategy, the, the same finishes, you know, last-minute finishes and, and Hail Marys. Everything on the field was the exact same, but take away the ability to celebrate it verbally with a crowd of people, and the sport itself became rather average. You see, the sport, the greatness of the sport becomes greater when you can share it through song, through the singing of the alma mater, when you can share it with other people. You see, that's why you need to come to church on Sunday morning. It is not because God needs you to sing to Him. God doesn't need anything, but it is for your understanding of God that as we sing together in a full room with loud voices, it actually impresses upon us in deeper and more significant ways the greatness of the triune God who has created the world and redeemed His people. Singing completes our joy. So come to an end, real quickly, th three points of application that all revolve around singing. Three points of application. Number one, we are to sing together. Number two, we are to sing loudly. Third and finally, we are to sing to and we are to sing about God. So number one, we are called to sing together. Look at verse one. Very simply, it begins with let us. Let us us sing. I'm sure that we have some wonderful maestros that like to sing in the shower and in the car on the way to work. And I'm sure you sound splendid by yourself in the car. That's not what the psalmist is calling for right here, just for you to crank iTunes and sing by yourself in the shower. No, the psalmist is calling here for corporate singing. Let us, that's plural, let us sing together. And that plural language of us leads to what Protestants call a theology of congregational singing. That on Sunday morning, the main voice that we want to be heard and lifted up to God is the voice of the entire congregation together. That's, of course, it is very helpful to have Kyle and Rachel and Tashara and Catherine and Thurgood, just very gifted vocalists. It's, it's very helpful to have them leading us because they have good voices. They can keep us in tune and they can tell us when to start and when to finish and when to speed up and when to slow down. Their voices are very helpful in leading us. But we are not here like a Taylor Swift concert just to hear them. We are here so that us, let us sing together. Psalm 95 teaches that church is not a concert, 
but a corporate singing activity. This is not a time like perhaps some churches do for you to sit back, drink your latte as the professionals jam away on the stage. No, let us sing. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one church. Therefore, we are to sing to God with one voice. The loudest sound, and I love that at the end of our last song, the musicians dropped away, and it just was a cappella. The loudest sound that we should hear every single Sunday morning is the sound of all of us together singing. Here's the main benefit of congregational singing. This is from Colossians 3.16. The Apostle Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what Paul is saying is when we sing together, let us sing, when we have congregational singing We are actually teaching and admonishing one another. So perhaps you think, well, the only time to really learn during a worship service is when a pastor is preaching. And that's actually not what Paul says. Paul says the time of singing is also a time of teaching. But the teaching that happens during the singing is not from the pastor, but it is from the congregation as a whole. So take the perhaps the most well-known hymn in the history of the Christian church. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, written by John Newton. When a congregation sings that song, when we're all actually singing together out in the congregation, there might be a college student that is stuck in deep sin, testifying to God's Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. In that same congregation, there will likely be a widow that for decades has been living alone, testifying to amazing grace, how sweet the sound. In the congregation, there will be somebody that is struggling financially that is singing praise to God. There will be a recovering addict. There will be a teenager. There will be the elderly There will be somebody that has known Jesus for 80 years singing about God's grace. There will be somebody that just received Christ this past year testifying to God's amazing grace. Goals and age groups and different ethnic backgrounds. When all of us together are singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, you can look around the congregation and you can see that person, you know their story, you know their testimony, and you see them testifying to amazing grace. You are actually taught something for yourself about amazing grace. So we need to sing together. You need to sing on Sunday morning because your testimony through song is a way of blessing your brother or sister in the Lord. And therefore, if you hold back on Sunday morning, you are robbing your brother or sister an opportunity to grow in the Lord. Let us sing together. That was the first application. Second application, sing loudly. Now, I'm Presbyterian, so we like things decently and in order. And yet, if you look at verses 2 and 4, you get the sense here 
that this isn't just sort of dry, boring, stoic mumbling in the back of the sanctuary, that this is loud, warm-hearted, joyful singing. Sing with your whole heart. Over, when, I, when I was raised, I was not raised in a house that sung very often. So I was actually very timid when I sang. I remember, this is before I was a Christian, my mom signed me up for a church choir and we had to do tryouts. And I, uh, I think I still have nightmares about that today. I hated it. One of my fears, and now probably one of you young people will do this. One of my fears is that somebody will ask me to officiate their wedding and they'll say, would you just mind doing a solo as well? And I just, I, I don't know what I would do. I think I would call in sick that day and have Demiron preach. I, I, I am not drawn naturally to singing. But I will say over the years, as I have just given myself more to it, I do think just practice helps a little bit, that I have grown to embrace it more and more. Another story, when I was growing up, again, this is before I was a Christian, and my, my, my friends took me to an event at their church, and I, I really, I was a grumpy, moody teenager, so in, in the back, I just sat like this, and I just was sort of mumbling the words that were on the screen, and I'm sure she was very sweet, but this, this church woman came up to me and said, son, if Jesus died for your sins, the least you can do is sing for him. Now, wow, you know, glad to be at your church. Now, in hindsight, looking back, it wasn't a very helpful comment, especially to somebody that didn't know the Lord yet. It's also probably pretty legalistic. You know, Jesus died for you, therefore pay him back by singing. Again, that's, that is not good Reformed doctrine. Jesus does not need our singing. Jesus is not insecure in heaven. Just, oh, please, if Redeemer could just sing a little bit more, I feel better about myself. Jesus doesn't need any of that. It's bad theology, but I will say it did leave a mark on me that if, if I'm going to be a Christian, one of the things I need to give myself to is growing in the practice of singing. So my encouragement to you, especially if you are not a very good singer, if you have never been trained, never really practiced, my, my, my encouragement would just be just, just go for it. Just go for it. Just trust the Lord. Sing with your whole heart. I do think you will get better. No promise that you'll become Pavarotti, but I do think practice does help. But even if it never happens, your joy in the Lord will be incomplete if you hold back in the area of singing. So for the sake of your completed joy in the gospel, I would encourage you to sing with your whole heart. So we are to sing together, we are to sing loudly, and third and finally, we are to sing to, and we are to sing about God. And this last point is really the point of the entire psalm. These are people that are singing to God. So when we come together in the church, we want to sing songs that are about God. And we want to be clear about that. We want to be very clear that our songs are about the triune God of the universe. So many of the, the modern worship songs sound very similar to the songs that I was slow dancing with Vanessa at, at high school homecoming in 1999. Just like slow, melodramatic, vaguely spiritual, kind of mystical. And I'm just like, is, is this song about 
the triune God of the universe who spoke the world into existence out of nothing about Jesus who died on the cross? Or is this just about my high school girlfriend? It's very confusing. And as a church, we just want to do better. It's one of the things I love about Redeemer's music is that we have songs that are clearly about who God is and what God has done. Songs that we sing in corporate worship, songs that we sing together, and songs that we sing loudly should sound very different than the songs that a high schooler is singing to his girlfriend. God is great. He created the world. All that is in the world, God created. Sing clearly about that God. God in Christ has redeemed a people from the pit of hell. God has brought you into his family forever. Sing about Jesus. Sing about the cross. Sing about the blood that cleanses people from sin. We want songs that are Theo and Christocentric. We want to be clear with our lyrics. Now, when you're picking a song, it's not that only lyrics that matter. You certainly want a good tune, want some good poetry, rhyme, rhythm. Singing is an art. It is not an exact science. That's the beauty of it. It is, it is possible to have a, a, a song that is great theology, and it's just a terrible song. I mean, so you need both, the, the art and the theology combined together. But it is true that if you're going to err on one side, the goal of great music is that it is clear on who God and His work is. That is what is most important. I believe that is what we have here at Redeemer, and I pray that it would continue to be that way into the future. So singing is a grace. Singing is a gift that God has given to you that is going to keep your heart soft towards Him. And it's going to help you grow in your relationship with our great God. So come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's pray.